and whenever I see all of these places that we're going, the thing that comes to my mind uh, is, first off, the Stephen Street Baptist Church of Cookville is more than just a ministry that tries to reach the people of Cookville, uh, that we are a ministry that tries to reach people all around the globe. We have uh, taken the command of Jesus seriously that he gave to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, 19. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say just go and make disciples of people in Cookville, Tennessee, but go and make disciples of all nations. And so if we, if we claim this book is our Bible, if we claim the, 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 the Bible as the Word of God to us, then we have to say that that's God's command that He has given to us. We, we have to embrace a cross-cultural, disciple-making type of activity. And so when I think about all these places that we're going next year, Romania and Rwanda and Asia and all these different places in Asia and Pittsburgh and all these different places— the thing that comes to my mind is that when it comes to all of those people, and that represents a lot of people, is that Jesus is worthy of their praise. He is worthy of their praise. And that is why we go. That is why we do what we do. Uh, so uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue in this series uh, entitled Sanctified. And today I want to talk to you about what it means to be sanctified by the Spirit. Uh, I guess you could say uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is part two, uh, Sanctified by the Spirit, part two. Anytime we start talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, different people think about different things. And the truth is, uh, the church of God, historically, has had various theological and doctrinal controversies that we have uh, had to work through together as Christians. Uh, during the early parts of Christianity, uh, there were a lot of debates, there were a lot of church councils, and Christians came together and they talked about, for example, things like the Trinity or things like uh, the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Well, over the past, I guess you would say about the past hundred years, uh, there has been a lot of discussion among Christians um, about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And of course, over the past 100 years or so, we have seen the rise of, of Pentecostal churches, neo, what we call neo-Pentecostal churches, uh, charismatic churches. And sometimes there is a little bit of disagreement, even among non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic type of believers, as to what the role of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer. And um, basically, there's groups of people that say, well, uh, they call they call themselves continuationists. They say that anything that we saw God do in the book of Acts should be normal and normative uh, for Christians today. So we should, uh, we should see people healed all the time. We should uh, speak in unknown tongues and things like that. And then there are people who would call themselves uh, non-continuationists, and they would say things like, well, you know, God did things back then that maybe he doesn't do now. Maybe he's working in kind of a different way. And I find it interesting that any time that we talk about the Holy Spirit, that sometimes these types of things, these ty types of things maybe have a tendency to come up, where we talk about, well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in my spiritual gift, for example, 1 Corinthians 12. Or people might say, well, what is the role of the Holy Spirit as far as signs and wonders? Should we see signs and wonders in our day in the same way that we saw in scriptural times? A lot of times we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in worship. Well, as I pointed out last week, in Romans chapter 8, we're really not talking about any of those things. 
We're really not talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. We're really not talking about, you know, uh, continuationism versus non-continuationism. Uh, we're really not talking about, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit in worship or anything like that. The Romans, in Romans chapter 8, this is the chapter that basically speaks about the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to be godly. Do you know that your spiritual gift is really of no consequence if you're not godly? Do you know that the role of the Holy Spirit as far as doing miracles or, 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 or his role within worship as we sing, all those different things, you know, all those are really, all those are really kind of secondary to the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to be godly. And by the way, just here's a cheat sheet for you. This is not the topic of my sermon today. But you know, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is empowering us for mission. Maybe that should have been the title of my sermon today. Maybe I should have had a, a sermon today related, related to that. Those are the two main things that we see that the Holy Spirit does in our life, and He's operative in our life, is it helps us to be godly, and He empowers us to live on mission. Well, today I want to continue to talk to you about how the Holy Spirit works in our heart and works in our life to help us to be godly, to help to sanctify us. Last week when we were in Romans chapter 8, we looked at the first few verses. I guess we looked at the first eight verses. And I spoke to you about how the Holy Spirit removes condemnation, how the Holy Spirit makes us righteous, and how the Holy Spirit makes us spiritual. He helps us to have a spiritual mind. This is what the Spirit does to help us to find victory in our life as we seek to be godly. Well, today, as we continue in Romans chapter 8, I want to point out four other truths, just real basic truths, and, um, and, and I guess you say this is kind of, the, this is kind of the, the summation or the continuation of the sermon that I started last week, but four other truths, just basic truths that we see what the Holy Spirit does to help us to be godly. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we read these verses in Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through verses 17. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, today we stand on the authority of the infallible and inerrant word of God. 
Lord, you tell us that the Spirit dwells inside of us. God, you tell us that the Spirit gives us a resurrected life. God, you tell us that the Spirit kills the fleshly desires inside of us. And Lord, you show us clearly in your word that we've just read that your Spirit gives us assurance that we're saved. Lord, I pray that today you would just minister to your people. I pray that today that you would encourage your flock. I pray that today, Lord, that the body of Christ might be encouraged and developed. Lord, that you might generate faith in the hearts of everyone who hears the word of God preached today. Lord, we need your encouragement. We need your empowerment. Lord, we know we can't live this life on our own. We know we can't be godly on our own. Help us, Lord. Send your spirit, and may we be completely yielded to you and to your movement in our life. And we love you and offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, if you didn't notice, uh, the theme of the prayer that I just prayed is the theme of the text that we just read and is the points of the sermon uh, of what I'm going to be talking to you about today and is what I am praying that the Lord would do in your life and would really show uh, you today in your life. I hope that today that you would come away with this message, with this worship service, that you would come away today with a keen awareness that you have the Spirit of God living in you, not just around you, not just in a far off place, that you would come to the realization that God has given you a resurrected life, uh, not just a religious life that is boring. I hope that today as, as, as the Spirit moves in your midst, as the Word is preached, I hope that you realize that the, the weapon of the Spirit in your life is made to overcome the flesh, and I hope that today that you will leave with an assurance of your salvation if the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And those four points are found in the text today, and those four points are also printed on the back of your bulletin. I want to start today by talking about, I guess you would say, one of the most foundational truths that we have about the Holy Spirit, and that is that the fact that the Spirit is in, is, lives inside of us, that we are indwelled by the Spirit. We see this clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. Think about all the times in these verses, and they may have popped out to you whenever I read them, all the times that it talks about how the Spirit, God the Spirit, dwells in you, that He actually lives inside of you. This is a profound mystery, but it is also a foundational truth into who the Spirit is and how the Spirit works in your life. A lot of people view the Holy Spirit as, 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 uh, as, as God speaking to them from the outside, the Spirit coming upon them from the outside. And while that might be true initially, before you receive the Spirit, the Spirit comes upon you, the Bible clearly teaches that if you're a Christian, the Spirit doesn't come upon you from the outside, that the Spirit dwells with you on the inside. And we see this repeated all throughout Scripture. And this passage of Scripture that we've read today is no exception. Four different times it speaks about the Spirit that dwells on the inside of you. Now this has not always been the case. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read about God the Spirit. I know that we don't, we don't uh, really see God the Spirit mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, but God the Spirit is very present in the Old Testament. And we see instances in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came upon certain people at certain times and certain places for certain purposes. 
Um, But God promised in the Old Testament that there would be a time that his continued presence would be with his people and that he would actually live inside of his people. And I don't have time to recount all of those instances in the Old Testament, but if you wanted to go back and read Joel chapter 2, we can see a specific prophecy where God said, I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to live with inside of people. In fact, um, we even see Joel chapter 2 used on the day of Pentecost whenever Peter, um, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he preached from Joel chapter 2 in giving an explanation to all the people that saw uh, uh, the disciples filled with the Spirit. Well, Jesus prepared his disciples for this. He told them in John chapter 14 and following, he said, I'm going to send you a counselor. And then that actually happened as recorded, as I just mentioned, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when God fulfilled what he promised a long time ago, that we would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that God wouldn't just live close to his people in a temple. And I find that some people still think that today, that somehow God lives lives within the church, and so we go to, the, we go to church to visit with God, um, and that's not really the case anymore. God said, no, it's going to be different than that. I'm not just going to live close to you to where you can go visit me. He says, I'm going to come visit you in a way to where I'm going to actually live inside of you and be with you all the time and be present with you. I think it's worth noting that all throughout the book of Acts, every time someone got saved, the Bible says something about the Holy Spirit coming upon people and filling them and indwelling them. And every single time someone has gotten saved since the day of Pentecost, Every single time someone has gotten saved over the past 2,000 years, the Spirit of God has come to dwell within that person. Every single time, without exception, you don't get saved unless the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell with inside of you. This is a foundational truth. There's no such thing as being saved and not being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I remember when the Holy Spirit came upon me, whenever I believed the gospel, whenever I turned my heart to the Lord, whenever I called upon His name, the Spirit of God rushed upon me. And I was spiritually brought to life. The same thing happened to you the day that you got saved. And because of this indwelling, what we understand, and there's a lot of things that we can draw by implication of of the indwelling, but God cannot be closer to you than he is now. God cannot be closer to you than how he has made himself available to us as a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you. Do you know that no other person lives inside of you except you? Do you know as as close as you are with people in this world, you may say, I have a great relationship with my spouse. You might say, I have an awesome relationship with my kids. You might say, I have a, a bond of friendship with someone since childhood. Do you know it is not possible for you be closer, any closer to God than he has made available to you, and you can be closer to God. You can have 
have an intimacy with God that supersedes the connection that you can have with any other person because of the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you. And if the Spirit of God lives inside of you, that means that He should have more influence than anyone. He should shape your life more than anyone else. He should control control your emotions and your thoughts and your desires and your actions more than anyone else, more even than you yourself. The Holy Spirit, because He dwells inside of you, You can have a relationship with God, and whenever you grow in Christ, it's not something that happens from the outside. It's something that takes place from the inside because God lives inside of you. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That really kind of leads to the second thing that we see in this passage, and that is that we are resurrected by the Spirit. Verses 9 through 11 also talk about this, this life that we have, to have, how we're not in the flesh, that, may, that, even, that maybe the body is dead, meaning spiritually dead because of sin, but because of the Spirit, we have life. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we can be raised from the dead. Now, this is interesting language, and it's, it can be kind of complicated sometimes whenever the Bible uses examples of like life and death or, or other examples that we see in Scripture. There's a lot of, a lot of symbols that the Bible uses. Uh, sometimes the Bible uses the symbol of water. Sometimes the Bible uses the symbol of fire uh, to talk about the Holy Spirit. But then other times we see that the Bible uses different symbols in different ways and different writers use them in different ways also and so sometimes whenever we read about this death and life language sometimes we're wait wait a minute are we talking about physical death and physical life we talking about spiritual being spiritually dead are we talking about spiritual life and it can get a little bit complicated especially whenever you try to cross-reference this with other verses of scripture that talk about death and life and you say well does it mean spiritually or physically Essentially, just to simplify this, what this is basically speaking about is this is speaking about how Christ was, he physically died, he was physically raised from the dead, but he also has a spiritual life. And so the same thing with us, us, even though we have not been uh, physically, even though we haven't physically died, we can have the same spiritual life that Jesus had. And the same spirit that brought Jesus back from uh, uh, back to a physical life brings us and resurrects us for a spiritual life. It's the, it's the same spirit. It is the life of Jesus alive in you. We celebrate this every Easter. Every Easter we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is not just something, his life, his, his resurrection is not just something that we celebrate that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that should have taken place in us. His life should be manifest in our mortal bodies. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and so we should have a resurrected life. There should be a distinction between you and a person who is not saved. There should be a distinction. And it should be the same distinction between a live human and a dead carcass. There should be a resurrected life that, that is seen in us, and this is something that the Holy Spirit is, has given to us. And in some measure, 
And in some fashion, you have experienced this resurrected life. There has been some type of way that it has happened in you and that it is growing in you and that is becoming more real in you because this is what the Spirit does. We are resurrected by the Spirit, but that's not all. How about this one? There's also a death that the Spirit brings into our life. I just call this being killed by the Spirit. Maybe that's not good terminology. Maybe you've never heard, maybe you've never heard that before. But we for sure see a ministry of the Spirit in our life that brings about death, though not physical death. It brings about a death of our old sinful nature. Look what the Bible says here in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. So, um, this talk about that we see in Scripture about the flesh, this is a term that we use a lot. You may use this term about yourself a lot. You know, you, you get mad and you just say, man, I just got in the flesh on that one. Or you, somebody makes a Facebook post and you just close your computer and you're like, ah, it just puts me in the flesh. You know, that's, a, that's an easy one, right? You just get in the flesh over something. You get mad. And we talk about that a lot. You know, it just really put me in the flesh. Well, the, the flesh is a negative term. The flesh, we see it all the time in the, old, in, in the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, you can just put in quotations, the flesh. We see it multiple times uh, in this passage, three times in just a couple of verses. We see that term, the flesh, and it's all throughout Scripture. This is a negative term. This describes not, our, not necessarily our physical flesh, but it describes all of the bad deeds, the bad thoughts, the evil desires that dwell inside of us. We could just call it the sin nature. That's, that, that was the term that we used whenever I was in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, especially. It was just our sinful nature. We just call it the flesh for short. Because there's something about our sinful nature that's connected uh, to this world and to our physical human bodies. Uh, the Bible says that we're not supposed to live or be led by the flesh anymore. Uh, that we're supposed to live by and be led by the Spirit. Now, the greatest contrast that I can give you in Scripture is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and verse 17. And we see this right here. Uh, and Look at this language. He says, but I say, and this is, this is also the Apostle Paul, the same person that wrote Romans. He also wrote Galatians. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, Again, in Romans chapter 7, we talked about how there's this war inside of us, the flesh and the spirit, our old nature and our new, our new nature. Walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and they're opposed to each other. In other words, there is the old you, your fleshly nature, your old desires, your old thoughts, all those types of things that is opposing the Spirit's work in your life. 
And it happens to us all the time. And there are those sweet moments when it seems like that we are just yielded to the Spirit of God and the Lord's just doing a great work in our life and we're walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when that happens, we're like, man, the Spirit is just doing a work in me. But there's those other times, and, and for all of us it's different, and you know what I'm talking about, whenever you get in the flesh and you aren't walking in those ways. And, and the Bible gives us a snapshot of what that looks like in Galatians 19. It says, here's the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. And it gives a list of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's a prescription that we have as to how we should handle the flesh. He says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. There's this language of death. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 8. If we go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 14, that phrase that I kind of tried to emphasize, it says, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. This is something that the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God brings terminal violence upon the flesh. The Bible says that we're to put, the, to put to death these works. This is a spiritual execution. It's, it's, it's crucifixion. It's capital punishment upon the evil within inside of us. And this is what Jesus also prescribed. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And the list of fleshly desires that we read in Galatians is a good start of the things that the Spirit wants to kill in our life. And what a lot of the times what happens is, is when we, we read lists like that of things in the flesh that need to be gone, we start thinking, well, I am going to deal with the flesh in my life. I am going to kill these things in my life. But the Bible clearly shows that the weapons that we fight, fight the flesh with is not willpower, but spirit power. The Holy Spirit of God is supposed to be the one that deals with all of these fleshly things inside of us. And we are to take no prisoners. We are to unite with the Spirit of God in stamping out and killing by the Spirit all of those things inside of us that are opposed to what God wants for us. After all, how are we supposed to be resurrected by the Spirit and live the life of the Spirit if we're not also putting to death the things that are opposed to the Spirit? And so you see how the Spirit's work of life and the Spirit's work of bringing death to the flesh, the fleshly impulses, that the two work hand in hand. And really, they're not separate ministries. Really, they happen simultaneously. So the Spirit indwells us. The Spirit gives us new life. The Spirit helps us to overcome or kill the flesh. But the Spirit also assures us 
of our salvation. Here's one of the things that we see clearly in these next verses. Verses 14 through verse 17 is just filled with so much good truth. This idea that we've been adopted, this idea that we are heirs of Christ. We see language in these verses that talk about how God is our Father and we see a lot of great things. How we're, we're sons, we're sons and daughters, we're family. And there's so many things that we could say about these verses. We could say a lot about adoption. We could talk a lot about God being Father. There's so many things that we could say. But I believe that the core of these verses, of what God is trying to communicate through all of these images of being heirs and fellow heirs and God being Father and us being sons, us being adopted... I believe that the core message that's trying to be communicated here is that the indwelling Spirit of God that gives us life, gives us victory, that removes sins of our life, the indwelling Spirit of God gives us assurance that we're saved. This is an important ministry of the work of the Spirit in our sanctification and in the work of the Spirit in helping us to walk in victory. And it's, it's so often overlooked. Many times over the past, you know, 20 or 30 years, however long I've been in ministry, people will come and they'll ask, well, how do I know that I'm saved? And I think this is a normal struggle. Obviously, people struggle with the indwelling spirit. How do I know God's with me? Obviously, people struggle with walking in the resurrected life of Christ and finding, uh, uh, how do I find victory over the flesh? These are, these are things that people struggle over, but also people struggle over just the assurance. How do I know that I'm saved? I think this is a, ne this is a necessary struggle because it is possible to have a false assurance. And this is very dangerous. I believe that, in my opinion, the scariest of verses in all of the Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through verse 23. And these are people who had a false profession and they had, they had false assurance. And you've, you've seen these verses before. It says, not everyone who says, in other words, not everyone who confesses with their mouth, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day, the day of judgment or the day of their death or, or, or the, day that, the day that they're about to be cast into hell. On that day, they'll say to me, well, Lord, Lord, did we not, not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them. These are words that no one ever wants to hear. I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not that you were saved and now you're not saved anymore. It's, it's like, I never knew you. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is a false assurance that exists among people, and Jesus has pointed them out. So how do we know if we're saved? How do we know? What gives us that assurance? And first, there's some things that can't give you the assurance of your salvation. First off, it cannot come through church declaration. We can't tell you that you're saved. We cannot give you an official notice or an official, uh, you know, notarized piece of paper 
that says, you are now saved. Now, there are, some, there, there are some groups of Christians that do believe that. They believe that because you're connected to the church, that God's grace is dispensed to you through things like church sacraments. We don't believe that. We don't believe that it can happen through church declaration. We don't believe that you can find assurance of your salvation through church declaration or through family affiliation. A long time ago, your parents might have told you that you were saved. But unfortunately, you can't find assurance that way. You cannot personally find assurance just because you're, you're, family, you're, you're connected to your family. I pray that my children would never, ever think that they're saved just because their daddy is a preacher and just because they've been Southern Baptist nine months before they were born. I hope that they would never find assurance in those two things. It also cannot come through just-believe theology. Oh, just believe. Oh, you, you just, just believe. Just believe. Listen, it, even the demons believe. It can't be through that. It also can't come through just through analyzing my behavior. Well, I'm a moral person. Well, look at me. I do nice things, and I'm a moral person. I'm good. Hey, guess what? I believe the right things. Well, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. You know, you know what? I, I, I mean, even the church, everybody at church thinks that I'm saved and thinks highly of me. Assurance of salvation cannot come through these things. And anyone that I have ever known that has ever struggled with an assurance of salvation has come up empty every time they've explored these options. Well, I've been to church, and we'll look at my family, and we'll look at my, look at my behavior, and, and all these types of things. There's three ways that we find assurance of salvation. Three ways. Number one, the testimony of Scripture. It really has to start from here, but the testimony of Scripture. Do you know you have to believe the right things in order to be saved? If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, you know, you, you can't be saved. If you don't believe that Jesus was God and that only through him and his sacrifice and his death on a cross and through faith in him and confessing his name and belief in the resurrection and calling upon his name and faith. and if, 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 you don't, if you don't trust in God's word and have the testimony of Scripture as, as, as the primary thing, you know, you, you'll never be able to find assurance. You have to have the testimony of Scripture. And then you have to have the evidence of a changed life. This is a personal testimony. You have to have a personal testimony. You have to know that there was something that happened to you. That day that you called upon Jesus, and it was real in your life, and as a result of that, there is a change that is taking place in your life. You are being sanctified, and the Spirit of God is growing you, and you are becoming more godly. The change from within, this, this desire that you have for the things of God. These are the first two things that we look at. The testimony of Scripture. What does the Bible say about you and your life and has all of it happened? Are you believing the right things? Have you, have you, um, are you trusting in the right things? The evidence of a changed life. It can't just say it in the Word. It has to be something that is, in fact, real in you. And then to my point, to this passage, to what I believe that God's Word is saying here, there is an inner testimony. There's the testimony of Scripture. There's your personal testimony. 
And then there's the inner testimony. There is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is, this is what's meant in this, in this scripture when it, whenever it says in verse 16, it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. This is what it means to be assured by the Spirit. Look at verse 15 and look at verse 16 in these verses. There's something inside of us. Now, can we go back to that slide? Verses 14 through 17. There's something inside of us that cries, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. This is not just something that we say with our mouth. There is something in our hearts, something inside of us that cries, Abba, Father. You and God have a family connection and you know it because of the spirit that lives inside of you. You see, there's a special relationship that we should have with our children. Now, I know with earthly relationships, it's not perfect. But in the ideal earthly relationship, there should be a bond that parent and child should have. There should be a bond to where when father relates to son like he needs to, that something inside the son knows that our daughter, and it'll just say child, something inside of that child knows that that parent is treating me differently. That parent is treating me Different than all other children in the world. I, 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 think I, I think I probably treat my children different than I do your children. I have a special relationship with them. And I hope and I pray that my children feel it and know it. That there's something inside of them. Whenever they look at me, it's not just preacher. It's not just pastor. It's not just man. It's not even just man of God. It's, it's not just, you know, um, a human person. But there's something inside of them that says, Daddy. And this, this is what the Spirit of God does in your life. When you, when you think about God, this connection that you have with God, there's something inside of you that says, Daddy. Not, not just God, but a family connection that is real. An inner witness, an inner testimony in which the Spirit of God testifies with your spirit that you're children of God. Here's some other verses for you. 1 John 5.10 Whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. You see, full persuasion and assurance doesn't come from someone telling you that you're saved. Full persuasion and assurance comes from the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. This is why I don't tell people that they're saved. Because I don't believe it's my job. I don't believe that I'm the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that I can, I can tell people that they're saved. Now, I can tell people maybe when they're not saved, like if they're not believing the right things or they haven't been born again. Maybe, but as far as telling people that they're saved, I can tell people how to be saved. I can tell people what it looks like to be saved. I can challenge people to be saved. But do you know if the Spirit of God hasn't told you 
If you don't have that inner witness, that inner assurance, if the Spirit of God hasn't bore witness with with your spirit, then I don't want to give you a false assurance. I don't want you to one day stand before the Lord and the Lord say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I've never knew you. But do you know, if the Spirit has told you that you're saved, you know nothing that I say really matters. You would never be able to convince me that I'm not saved. You would, never be able to, you would never be able to come to me and convince me that I'm not born again because I've seen the witness of Scripture, I have the personal testimony, and the Spirit of God lives inside of me and has testified that I am His child and there's something inside of me that cries, Abba, Father. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. By this shall we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whoever, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You know, I love what Jesus said. He simplifies it for us. John chapter 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is so good at making it. I love the way that Jesus puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for us. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you have the Spirit of God? Have you been raised? Is the flesh being killed? Do you have the inner witness of Scripture, excuse me, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Hear His voice today. Let's bow.